Well, we are once again studying our way through John's gospel. So if you would turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is such a familiar story, one that we have all heard and I suspect many have taught in Sunday school. But it is a story that has often been wrongly interpreted and applied. It is a story about the feeding of the 5,000. And often it has been taught as a moralistic story where our lesson to be learned is how to share our food or other things like this young boy. Some detractors have even gone so far as to say that in this story, actually, Jesus did not multiply food, but that they had learned from the example of the young boy. And when they sat down, they all pulled out secret meals and shared them with one another, which is totally bogus. Um, God's word is not confusing. God's word is not unclear. It is not untrue. It is not hyperbole. It is not errant. It is not myth. It is the inspired word of God given to us so that we might, each Sunday as we gather together, we might hear God speak to us about who he is, all that he has done, and how we can know him through his son. And as we have as I have repeatedly communicated to you that the foundation and the backdrop of John's gospel is a verse at the end of John's gospel. I will read it to you once again so that as you hear and as you study this passage with me this morning, you see it through the lens of this passage. John 20, 31, but these are written. These are written, talking about in verse 30 in John 20, the signs that Jesus performed. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This account in John has been preserved for you and me today that you might believe where you would struggle with unbelief, that you might find life where you might feel dead inside and that you might draw near where you might feel distant from the Lord. Though these words are meant to give you life this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we study this passage, we are studying words that you are speaking to us. And may each and every one of us here this morning hear you speak. And not only hear you speak, Lord, but may we experience your presence and experience your outpouring of grace that you always give at the reading and studying of your word. And Lord, may your church be encouraged this morning. May faith rise in their hearts this morning. May hope explode in their hearts this morning as they see how good and great a Savior you are. And Lord, help me, please, in my weaknesses and my 
weak attempts to proclaim the words that you have spoken. Jesus' name, amen. Let me read this passage. Look at John 6, the feeding of the 5,000. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes and then seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down and about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Three points this morning with this passage. The first is setting the stage. John sets the stage. And if you want a title for this message, it's very creative. Feeding the 5,000. <laughs> so the first point is setting the stage. The second point is the dilemma. And the third is the solution. Setting the stage. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus had been in Jerusalem at a feast for the Jews. And while there, he is walking by the pool of Bethesda, and there is a lame man there. And Jesus, on the Sabbath, speaks to that man, tells him to get up and walk, and he does. And as a result of that healing on the Sabbath, persecution and opposition comes to Jesus. More importantly, they begin now, the Jews begin now to seek Jesus' death because he has made a claim to be equal with God. He has told them in chapter 5 that my father is working until now and I am working, which made him equal with God. And that incensed 
the Jews. And so Jesus wisely, after this experience, wisely distances himself from Jerusalem. And as we read in chapter 6, he makes his way to Galilee across the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. It was a, and this, in fact, in John's gospel, it's the only time it's called the Sea of Tiberias. But it was, it's called these names for a purpose. It's called these names to, to help us understand location. Tiberias was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So there was a journey that they had to take to get there. Tiberias had been a Roman emperor and that town was named after him and for some reason this lake the sea of galilee was named after him now the galileans where jesus had frequented it were not a sophisticated people they were more of a rural people they were laborers and pe- and peasants but they were also people who suffered greatly under roman oppression john the baptist who was one of their own John the Baptist, who was highly respected and highly loved. And as we read in Mark 6, 14, and I will read that. You do not have to turn there. But as we read in Mark 6, 14, King Herod heard of it for Jesus's name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. What's that about? Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. And his people in Galilee, that was a huge blow to them. So being under Roman oppression, having John the Baptist, one of their own, beheaded, there is much political unrest and hatred towards Rome. Much political unrest. And the Passover that John mentions in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The Passover is not just a religious holiday. In fact, F.F. Bruce in his commentary describes it this way, as does D.A. Carson. The Passover was a great patriotic festival, not unlike the 4th of July, which stirred the Jews' sense of national identity. John includes the Passover for a number of reasons, but one being that we would understand the nationalistic fervor of the Galileans and their opposition to Rome because of the oppression they experienced as well as the beheading of John. John mentions the second Passover as well for another reason. He, he helps give us a timeline, a chronology. In 2.13, in John 2.13, we read about the first Passover where Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple and his name actually begins to be well known. And, but now an entire year has passed. This is the second Passover. And so much has happened in that time. As we read through John, we don't always get dates to help us connect how much time is going on. But here we see it's the second Passover. And so we know a a whole year has gone by. And in that year, so much has occurred. Jesus has called his disciples. The first sign, water is turned into wine. And the disciples now are believing in him. He then cleanses the temple. He has an encounter with Nicodemus. He meets the woman at the well and she and the whole town come to faith in him. The second sign, the nobleman's son is healed and he and his whole family believe in him. And the third sign occurs when Jesus heals this lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And now 
in this year, as he has become more well-known and more signs and wonders are taking place, as more people are being healed and more people are revering Jesus, persecution and death threats now become a regular part of his life. And during this year, Jesus has traveled back and forth from Jerusalem and Samaria and Cana in Galilee. And now he is once again in the Galilean region. And to the crowds, it has been a year of signs and wonders. And because he is so well known, people are seeking after him. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs and wonders that were taking place. A large crowd was following him. In Mark's gospel, he describes it that the crowds were so large that they actually had to get away from the crowds. And what happens as Jesus and the disciples... the, the disciples had in Mark, if you read Mark's account, and I would encourage you, this is the only, this is the only sign, this is the only miracle that has taken place in all four Gospels. It's that it is the most prominent and the most profound and the most powerful of all Jesus' signs other than his death and resurrection. This appears in all four Gospels. And interestingly, in Mark's Gospel, we, we are able to fill in some of the holes. John is much, much more succinct. Mark provides a lot of, of information to us. The apostles returned to Jesus. The apostles in Mark had been sent out. They had experienced their first mission work. And there was much that was taking place. People were being healed as the disciples laid hands on them. People's lives were being changed. Demons were being cast out. And the disciples came back and they had been doing a lot of work. And they were jazzed. And they were tired. The apostles Mark writes, returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to him, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So the disciples were not able to eat. And so they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves across the Sea of Galilee. What we just read in John. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, Jesus looks and he sees a, and Mark describes it as a great crowd. There is a great crowd that follows after them. And in this feeding of the 5,000, that is what is before Jesus and his disciples. There is this great crowd before them. The disciples are wearied. They are needing rest and food. And because these great crowds are around and they've seen all these miracles and they run after the disciples when they get to the mountain, when they are there before Jesus, rather than sending them away, what does Jesus do? John doesn't tell us, but Mark does. Mark says that he taught them. 
He spent all day teaching them about the kingdom of God. But it gets late. And they are in a desolate place. And the disciples are still tired. And they're still hungry. And so in Mark, they approach Jesus and they say, send the crowd away so they can get food and they can rest. Now, that's where the dilemma comes. Philip, as we read, is put on the spot. Look at verse 5 with me. Lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, (laughs) where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? Now, Philip is from Bethsaida, that area of Galilee. That's his home turf. So he would know all the local restaurants and places to sit down and eat, where not to go and where to go. And so he knows the area. It's why Jesus would ask him, "Where, where would we get food? Now in Mark, Jesus simply looks at his disciples when they come to him and say, send the crowd away. And he says to them, you feed them. And so all of these guys who are wearied and hungry and have been sitting all day long after all this work on on the mission side and Jesus is done teaching, they just want food and rest. And I, I get that. Food is important. This is not what they wanted to hear. This is not the answer. I, I know what it's like to have your food ideas interrupted. Many, many times Marilyn has told me what's for dinner. And, and so most of the afternoon, my, my tongue begins to prepare for that meal. And I walk in and the meal is changed. <laughs> for a good reason, but it's changed. Years, a number of years ago when we were living in Atlanta, it was a Sunday afternoon And I was cooking one of my favorite meals, barbecue chicken on the grill in the back. And I do not like dark meat chicken. So if you do invite me over for dinner, I just want you to know, I do not like dark meat chicken or cheese for that matter. Uh, And so I'm, there's always, but all my kids in Maryland love dark meat chicken. So there's all this dark meat chicken and one chicken breast on the grill. And so it's all cooked. We're just sitting down at the table and there's a knock on the door. And I open it up and it's this couple from the church in Atlanta. They were driving in the neighborhood and their car literally broke down in front of our house. And they wanted to come in, of course, and we invited them in. And Marilyn looked at me and yeah, and so she invited them for dinner. And so we're sitting around the table and we're passing the chicken plate. And as it gets to Ricardo, I see his fork. And this whole experience is happening in slow motion. It's heading right towards the chicken breast. Now, I'm sitting there looking at this scene, knowing I'll have no food to eat if he touches that chicken breast. And that fork is heading there. Now, I'm sitting there like this. But inside, I'm going, no! And sure enough, he takes that chicken breast. And my food plans were totally interrupted. And if you had asked Marilyn, I ate salad and a little bit of baked potato and never spoke to Ricardo again. 
not true. I did speak to Ricardo again. But I understand the interruption of food. I understand when, when you're hungry and things get changed. And that is what is happening here. The disciples do not have the same tender care and concern for the crowd that Jesus does. He has spent all day feeding the crowd spiritually. And now, as a compassionate Savior... It's time to feed them physically. And so he presses the disciples into doing something. Now, it's interesting. Why does Jesus ask Philip this question when he already knew what he was going to do? Verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He already knew his plan to feed the 5,000. And yet he asked Philip, where are you going to get food? Why does he do that? Well, John helps us to understand he does this to test him. <clears throat> He's doing this to train his disciples. Train them in what way? To train and help these disciples get a clear picture of their inadequacy of their inability, of the impossibility of them doing what only Jesus can do. Listen, these guys just came from going out, sent by Jesus to heal, to cast out demons. No doubt they were feeling pretty good about themselves. Oh yeah, that wasn't too hard. Just cast that demon right out of that guy. Sure, we healed that layman, healed that blind man. Wasn't really hard. And then they get to here. And it's not just 5,000. It's 5,000 men, including plus women and children. So it's over, well over 10,000 that need to be fed. And so Jesus is testing them because he wants them to be freshly amazed by his grace and his power. And Philip's response is a typical one. It's the kind of response I would have. It's a natural one. Philip responds, even if we had 200 denarii, which is literally eight months of wages at that time. So in Philip's mind, he's thinking, listen, this is like eight months of wages. And that won't even feed this crowd. So he's not only seeing the impossibility, he's informing Jesus of the impossibility as if Jesus did not know of the impossibility. And so that is the huge problem. And then Andrew jumps in with a lot of help. And Andrew jumps in and says to him, one of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So that's as good as it gets. We've got five barley loaves and two fish from this little boy standing over here. <laughs> Jesus, you get the picture of why we need to send them away. There's nothing we can do. Everything 
was impossible at that moment. All the disciples see is their inability now to meet the impossible demand that Jesus had put before them. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted them to see. The disciples' problem, though, was not having, not having enough food. No, the disciples' problem was a defective view of Jesus Christ. Think about that. They had seen him turn water into wine. Who does that? They had seen him heal a nobleman's son with a word from a distant, not even going. And the boy's life is spared. They had watched him as he speaks to a lame man by a pool who had been lame for 38 years. Oh, the impossibility of a guy walking after 38 years. One who had not only walked, whose legs would be totally atrophied. And yet Jesus speaks a word, does not even touch him. And he stands up and he takes up his bed and he walks. And yet they missed what Jesus could do in this situation. They had a defective view of the Lord. Everything that day seemed inadequate, including the bread and fish brought by the boy. Now, you understand the the bread here is barley bread. John's the only one who mentions that it's barley bread. But barley bread is the bread of the poor. It is not the bread of the wealthy. It is the bread of the poor. It is a bread that is hard, almost tasteless, like bran muffins. It is... It is like that stuff my wife once tried to give me called Ezekiel bread, which is basically, it is cardboard with bumps in it. It is, that's what barley bread is. And that's what Jesus has here. That's, it is the bread of the poor. And Jesus tells them, feed these folks. I can identify with the disciples as they stood there with the crowds milling about, the crowds who had been there all day, who had actually run from another town to be with them, who were tired and weary as they were. It was late in the day, and there were children there that needed food. There were adults there that needed food. And the the disciples are standing there, and Jesus seems to be doing nothing, and he's looking at them saying, you feed them. How inadequate they must have felt at that moment. And I can identify with these disciples. I know what they're feeling. Not that I was there, although some young folks in this church would think I've been there. (laughs) Sometimes, though, it seems, and this is in my own life, sometimes it seems that God demands the impossible from me. I wonder how I can serve God when I look at the situations in my life and the circumstances and think, you know, there are so many problems in my life. How can I be useful? It wouldn't be surprising to me if many of you feel the same way. How can, in the midst of your own financial problems, can you give? How can I counsel this person when there are so many tangled issues in my own life? How am I going to solve this relational mess in the midst of my own relational issues? 
How can I pray for this person to be healed when I'm suffering? How can I encourage someone else's marriage when I'm not sure my own marriage will survive? How can I point someone to Christ when I'm not even sure Christ cares about me in my suffering and my trials? There are so many times that we can all feel like the disciples. We can all feel inadequate. We can all feel useless. We can all look at our circumstances and situation and think God is demanding the impossible from me at this very moment. And we can think no one knows the unique problem I face at this time. But it's not about what we can do. It's about what Jesus can do. And it starts with the greatest miracle of all that we have experienced, which is the salvation of our souls. The good news of the gospel is that the saving power of Christ is available to each of us, not only to face what seems to be impossible, but to walk with faith and grace through those problems because Jesus himself has promised to never leave us, to never forsake us. He has promised that grace would always be sufficient for us, especially in our weaknesses. The problem is we don't want to have weaknesses. Elizabeth Elliot, recently passed away, said this. She said, if the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in time of grief, the recognition that this is material for sacrifice has been a very great strength for me. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ, I simply give it to him as the little boy gave Jesus his five loaves and two fishes. With the same feeling of the disciples when they said, what is the good of that? For such a crowd. Naturally, in almost anything I offer Christ, my reaction would be, what is the good of that? The point is, the use he makes of it is not of my business. It is his business. It is his blessing. So this grief or this loss or this suffering or this pain, whatever it is, which at the moment is God's means of testing my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who he is, that is the thing I offer. That's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. That's what he was teaching them. So often we come before God, I come before God empty, and helpless, with nothing to offer, thinking I have nothing that God can use except my weakness, and that is the very thing I should be bringing to God. That is the very thing you should be bringing to God. Kent Hughes said this. He said, it is harder to give God our weaknesses than our strengths. If we are eloquent, it's easy to say, God, here is my eloquence. Take it and use it for the glory of God. Or if we're good businessmen, we can say, God, you have my administrative ability. You can ennoble it and add grace to it. Here it is. But to give God our weaknesses, 
No, we don't want to do that. But God wants to help us. And he wants to pour out his mercy on us. Isaiah 30, 18. Isaiah says this. He says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Let me read that again. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. That's exactly what the Lord does. Weaknesses, it's, it's all the disciples have to offer at this moment. It's all that they can give, us, give him is inadequacy and weakness and emptiness in meeting this impossible demand. Ah, but there's a solution. Verses 1 and 2 show us the circumstances. 3 through 7 show us the dilemma. And now verses 8 and on show us the solution. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. What a good shepherd. Just have them rest. And have them rest. And here's an here's a interesting verse, verse 10. Now there was much grass in the place. Great. So? Why, why, does, he, why does John note that? Well, actually, in Mark, Mark says there was much green grass in that place. Two reasons. One was simply to help us know and time-wise that it is the Passover time. It is springtime when green grass would be growing. Secondly, they're on a mountain. And, but there's, a, there's an area where it's green grass, where it's soft and comfortable. Jesus is concerned for the welfare of the crowd. And he's demonstrating a shepherd's heart to his disciples. And here, Jesus is doing the very thing that he said he would be doing and is doing in, Mar- in John 5. My father is working until now. I and I am working. And now Jesus begins to work. Imagine the scene here in verses 9 and 10. Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftovers, fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered up. They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley bran loaf muffins left over by those who had eaten. Imagine the scene. Here he has the disciples instruct the crowd. And that must take him some time because in Mark he tells them they, he had them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. And so you're talking, you know, over 10,000 people and they're sitting and they're, they're getting in groups on the green grass. And, and 
it, some, of these, some of these passages, and John, John's a good man and a wise man. He, he makes allusions at times. Here is the chief shepherd, the shepherd, our shepherd, having people sit down on green grass to feed them. What psalm does that remind you of? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What a picture of our Savior and his shepherding love and care. The same shepherding love and care he has for you. John tells us how many were there. And in verse 11, it says that Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. Now, think again, another allusion to Jesus breaking bread and giving thanks. Where does that bring your thoughts to? Is it not the Last Supper prior to his death and his crucifixion and his suffering and then his resurrection, that last supper where he at that moment was preparing to die for the sins of the world. That last moment here, and he has just spent all day teaching these men and women about the kingdom of God. And now he is breaking bread, and he is giving thanks. And what another great picture of dependence upon the Father. He had just told them, in, he just, his disciples had just heard, for whatever the Father does in John 5, that the Son does likewise. But I only do what I see the Father doing. I can do nothing of my own accord. Jesus is once again demonstrating his dependence on his father, a dependence that the disciples must learn if they're to follow after Christ and do the works that Jesus had called them to do. And now the scene gets surreal because after he gives thanks, they start distributing the food. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Can you see the disciples? They're going to Jesus. Jesus has these five loaves, these two fishes, and he has given thanks, and he's breaking the bread, and as the disciples come, he just keeps handing food to them. And they go and they go to a group and they give it to the group and they come back and Jesus just hands more to them. And they go back and they come back and Jesus keeps handing more to them. He didn't create probably this huge, massive pile of food. No, as you read in Mark, actually, he just kept handing them food again and again. And and if you were one of the disciples, you're going back going, is there really going to be more? And you keep going back and they see the power of God. At that moment, 12 baskets worth of the power of God left over. The bread and the fish are literally multiplying in his hands. 
Talk about the creative power of God, of Jesus. J.C. Riles calls it a continual act of creation going on. And it is certain that on no other occasion did our Lord manifest so clearly his creative power. The disciples were asked to do the impossible, but not without God's power. They did feed the crowd, did they not? They just fed the crowd because of the Savior, because of his power and his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his love. And as they, I'm sure, as they kept going back for more food and feeling inadequate in their own strength, they began to realize it's not about us. It's about him. How often in your own life have you seen God move in a situation and give you the words of wisdom or give you the strength to do something that you knew wasn't there and yet it keeps going? It keeps going. Each day, the Lord asks us to do more than we think we can possibly accomplish. Maybe in the season of life you're in, the circumstances that you have, you can feel like it's too much to bear and the struggle that you want to be the kind of disciple you desire to be, but it's just, he's asking too much. And at times the feelings of guilt from that kind of failure can be overwhelming. But you know what? None of us are adequate to be the husband and the wife and the mother and the student and the worker on our own. Many of us, if not all of us, feel the weight, the daily weight of sin's struggle, the hard work of the sanctification process and the pressure of being a witness for Christ. But the story doesn't end with you and me. It begins and ends with Jesus. He's the creator, the provider, the compassionate and loving God who sees all of our needs and accomplishes his work in us and through us. Look at verse 6 again. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. There isn't anything going on in your life that God doesn't already know how he is going to handle it. There isn't any pain that you're experiencing that God isn't already preparing you for grace and strength to walk through it. There is no trial that awaits you or you're walking through now that Jesus didn't already know. And where he will provide above and beyond what you could possibly ask or think or imagine. Kent Hughes says this. He says, do you have nothing to give? Then give that. Your nothing plus God is everything. We need to believe God is big enough and that he wants to help us. Then we must give our problem to him. May we set aside our pride and give it to him all. Give it all to him. God is big enough and he wants to help us. Now, this story has an unusual conclusion. They just got 
fed. The crowds are amazed. When the people, verse 14, saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, again, understand their nationalistic pride, their oppression from the Romans, what they've been walking through. And they know that a prophet like Moses is one day going to arise. That's what the Jews hope for. And so they look at Jesus, they know the signs he has done, they've watched this incredible sign that he has just done, and they declare, here is the the other prophet. Here is the one who had promised to come. Here is the one spoken about in the Old Testament. Here is the one. Then verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowds are so amazed they want more. They want more from him. They want to make him king. And he has to leave. It forces him to leave the area quickly. They want to force him to be king because of the miracles he has done. They miss completely who he is. All they see are the signs and wonders. One commentator said it this way. He who is already king has come to open his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus, they fail to get the king they want and lose the kingdom he offers. We cannot in our inadequacy and our emptiness and our weakness, we cannot try and make Jesus fit into our idea of who he should be and what he should do for us. We can't make him fit into our plans and our programs and our vision for our life. We fit into his plans. His kingdom is on his terms. His kingdom goes to the core of our human helplessness and our need. It is a kingdom of grace. It is a kingdom of the gospel. It is a kingdom of the only son of God. So what is the takeaway for us this morning? What is the application for us this morning? Two two things. First, Jesus' resources are without limit. Jesus' resources are without limit. When you are facing the impossible, when you are aware of your weakness and inadequacy and your emptiness, your first thought should go, so what? Jesus, Jesus is the resource. And he is limitless. He is the eternal one. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. There is no end to his love. There is no end to his grace. There is no end to his power. There is no end to our king. He is limitless. He is the eternal one. He sees your need and he already has the solution even before you know what the problem is. Secondly, Jesus' compassion is without limit. Mark 6.34 of this feeding of the 5,000 says that when he saw the crowd, he had great compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. And he 
has them sit down in green grass. He has them rest. He feeds them abundantly. He cares for them. And most importantly, he taught them of the kingdom of God. He told them of their greatest need, not for food, not for rest, but for a savior. And let me, let me plead with you, if you are sitting and listening to this this morning and you are not a Christian, you're just one of the crowd. There is an emptiness in your soul that only can be filled by Jesus Christ. And my appeal to you today is to come to faith. Put your faith in Christ. Trust in Him for your salvation. Trust in Him, the one who is eternal, the one who is limitless, the one whose resources never end, but more importantly, the one whose forgiveness does not end, who takes your sins and will throw them as far as the east is from the west when you come to trust in Him. Oh, would you trust in Him? If you are not assured of your faith in Christ, of your salvation, then please see me or someone that we might be able to help you not just be one of the crowd. John concludes this account this way because he wants to make sure that we don't try and fit Jesus into our little kingdom, but that we fit into his He wants to emphasize in this account for you and me the unique, powerful, and loving Son of God who has come to dwell among us that He might save us from the greatest problem that we have ever had, our sin and the righteous judgment of God. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. Let's pray. Father, I, I do pray that if there's anyone here who is not assured of their salvation, they're not assured of the day they stand before you, that you would draw them to yourself and open up their eyes and their heart. And Father, I pray for those who are feeling inadequate today and empty, that you would fill them with your presence and your grace and that you would empower them and you would give them a fresh look at who you are. The God who has limitless resources and the God who has limitless compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.